Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, Without wavering, for he who is promised, he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, it seems um, odd. I'm going to take this off. We've got some work to do. Um, it seems kind of odd that you come back from Christmas and New Year's break and all these things, and your pastor would dive right into a warning passage. Um, there are two reasons for this this morning. One is your pastor is slightly OCD and goes through books and does not like to deviate from that. The elders can tell you that every time that we have a deviation from it, it's usually because they told me I had to. Um, and I'm submissive to them. So, the that's one. Two is providence. God is sovereign, Lord over all things, and has determined that at sovereign grace today you are going to get a warning passage. So, here we stand. Now, as we read together, I want to remind you of the things that we covered last time, which was back at the end of November. We covered uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses... Let me fix this real quick. That should be slightly better. Uh, It's worse. Oh, good. All right. I'm not good at this. There we go. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe slightly better. Okay, so a little better, a little less. It probably won't bother me, huh? Um, okay, so as we approach this, I want to remind you of what we covered already. We talked about verses 19 
all the way down to verse 25 there. And there were three things that were there, let us, let us, and let us, right? We see, uh, not salad, let us, a break. So the first one was, uh, let us draw near. The first one, verse 22, let us draw near. And we talk about how that word for draw near is this concept of prayer and faithfulness. So the word for draw near in the Greek is literally connected to the word for pray, for prayer. That's a beautiful thing to realize that you have the ability to talk to an almighty, sovereign, holy God who is perfect in every way, and he listens. Just before you go anywhere else in this text, look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says, listen, if you have been redeemed and the high priest stands for you, then draw near to him. Inherent in this is the idea that some of them aren't. That this is a exhortation based on a truth. Exhortations are commands that are based on an already established truth. So this here is an exhortation for you to make the effort to draw near, to spend time in prayer, to have full faith, to trust in the Lord, and to draw near to Him. Just consider for a moment that in the Old Testament, the closest you could get was to 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 get to God was to a priest. And the closest he could get to get to God was to the high priest. And the closest he could get to get to God was one day a year. He got to go into a room for about an hour to see God after doing rituals all year to make sure he was clean enough not to die before the Lord. Consider that for a moment and then realize God has torn the veil and said, come into you. And he's told you, come near to me. You can say things to me and I will answer. And I will talk with you. And I will sit with you. It's a powerful exhortation. We draw near because we can. Verse 23 the next exhortation for us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering from it. For he who promised is faithful. So we hold fast to the confession of our faith, Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. We hold fast to this because he is faithful. We don't hold fast to it because everything in the world goes right for us. Indeed, the author of Hebrews is writing a bunch of Christians who may be in the midst of persecution. Who tomorrow could lose everything. We don't have that kind of persecution right now in the United States. It might come someday. It may never come. We don't have the kind of persecution that we're worried about people coming into the room and gathering us all up and throwing us in jail because we decided to have a church service. That does exist in the world. It doesn't exist in the States. 
might someday, but it doesn't yet. We don't, we don't have that kind, but, but they did. But they did. First century Christians had that kind of persecution. They might lose everything tomorrow. So he says, we hold fast to our confession of faith, not because everything goes well for us, not because we get all these things from God, but because he is faithful. And he promised, and what did he promise? That he's going to come back. And when he comes back, everything gets set right. I think I've mentioned before that people will start to rail about politics, and I always have this hesitancy to even talk about it. Because, look, I've got a king who's coming back, and what is this, all these political things that are going on bear nothing compared to his return. And I know him, and if that person I'm talking to doesn't, then they are in big, big trouble. Bigger trouble than the president, or the senate, or the congress. They're in bigger trouble if he comes back and they don't know him. Because he's king over all things. Not just political movements on this earth. So we hold fast to our confession of faith. Not because everything is going right in the world. We hold fast to our confession of faith. Because he who promised is faithful. While we might be faithless. While we might falter, fail. While we might even turn our backs for a time. He is faithful to complete what he starts. Remember that great verse in Philippians that he is, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. I love that verse because it has nothing to do with me. He who began the work is faithful to complete it. Yay! In me. He who began the work in me is faithful to complete it. So I can trust that he is faithful and he's going to do the work. Third, let us there is verse 24, probably the most convicting verse for those of us who live in America. Let us consider how to stir one up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, there's not a gentle way to say this, but attend. Attend the community of faith. Come. And if you see people who are not here, call them. Bother them. I bother people when they don't come, but I'm expected to. If you bother people when they don't come, you're just obeying the Bible. Bother them. Do not neglect the public gathering together with the saints. So there's three things here, right? There's one, this internal pray. Pray, have faith, pray. Then there's the second uh, personal, personality thing of having the integrity of holding fast to your faith. What we call it here is owning your crazy. 
We own our crazy here. We believe the Bible. We believe what it says. It's insane, and we know it's true. So we own our crazy, and everybody sees it. And then finally, we gather together. We stir one another up in love. We gather together as faithful community. So when we fail, I just, I just want to talk to you about the ladder, right? This is a ladder. It's a ladder of external evidences. You've got the private prayer life and faith life. Then you've got the personal integrity life, which starts to bear itself out in front of people. And then you've got the public worship life. Right? He's got the, let us have faithful private prayer. Then there's, let us have the integrity that shows up in the world. We hold fast to our faith. We hold fast to our confession. And there's this last one of let us stir one another up. So this is done in community. You can't do the last one by yourself. This is a ladder. And if this bottom rung gets weakened, it will be evidenced in the top one. As people pull away from the body, it's usually because these bottom two rungs are weakened. And often because the bottom one is non-existent. So some of you know when you've missed church, what's the questions I've asked? What's, when you're pulling away from community, what's the questions I've asked? They're things like, how are you doing? What are you doing to grow? What have you been reading? What can I pray for you for? How can we pray together? Because if that bottom rung is strengthened, then you'll step to the next one, where you'll get some integrity and some some personal growth, and you'll start to realize, I can hold fast to this faith, I can own my crazy, and it will be good for me. And it will be good for the world around me. And then finally, as that starts to solidify, you start to want the community. You start to want the community. This is a, this is a step ladder in Hebrews here. You've got three steps, and they all are exhortations to moving forward. And they are followed Immediately, by a terrifying warning. So that was the happy part. Now let's look at the warning. And we're going to spend two weeks in this warning. In 19 through 31 here, we're going to spend two weeks. Because it's, it's warranted. And I need two weeks to cover the whole thing. So we're going to do it. So let's go verse... 26, we see him give these exhortations, these three exhortations come together to uh, hold fast and to pray, and then he comes to verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit 
of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a terrifying warning. This is the fourth warning in the book of Hebrews. And it is a terrifying sound. So let's see what's going on here. The warning, first we need to understand what's going on. Let's look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning, stop there. This is a practice of life. A pattern of life. Somebody who is continuously sinning. Somebody who is continuously rejecting the name of God. He does not mention, if you'll notice, there's not a list of sins here. There's not a list, and there's a reason that there's not a list. It's so you can't excuse yourself. It's so that this warning lands on you, and you go, oh no. So I don't want to lose that. I don't, I don't want to lose that tense reality of this warning, that he is speaking this to people who may or may not believe, but it lands on everyone the same. If we go on sinning, we continuously sin. This is the first thing. Recognize that this is continual and habitual. If we go on sinning, it's followed by this next word, deliberately. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. So we go on sinning, having received or seen or made contact or recognized the knowledge of the truth. So you have heard the gospel, you know the truth of Jesus Christ, and you deliberately, willfully go on sinning against him. This is, this is deliberate. So let that land on you and scare you. Let it. There's, the author here doesn't give you an out. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You are guilty. If this describes you, you are guilty. Repent and believe in Jesus. Repent. This is serious. Repent and trust Him and push hard into Him. This is willful and it's after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Remember the call of verses 22 through 25 that we just went over. This is somebody who deliberately and persistently rejects God. They do not draw near to God. They do not cling to the hope of their faith in God. They do not trust the promise of God. And they do not gather with the saints. They do not stir one another up to good works. They, they don't. This is somebody who does not do 25, 22 through 25. 
This is somebody who deliberately and persistently rejects God. 1 John uh, 3 verse 9 reminds us that this is not the description of a believer. And those who do this are not redeemed. This is a severe warning for us. Examine yourself. Examine your heart. Have you trusted, legitimately trusted in Christ to where you have surrendered? You are not enslaved to sin, but now slave to righteousness, and it does not feel right. It doesn't, it's not natural for you to deliberately sin against God. And continuously live that lifestyle. Your life has been transformed and changed. You want to know why? When you persist in sin, it hurts and bothers you so much. This is why. Because as a Christian, it is not you. It's painful. And the world tells you to find joy in it, peace in it, and you can't. Why? Because it's sin. Of course you can't find joy and peace in sin. The world's not at peace. They don't know. We have this picture, this warning that I, I want to land on us. Now, I, I'm going to be fair. Next week, we're going to talk more heavy theologically about who this is and how apostasy works and what all that comes together. But this week, we need to let this land on us. And we need to let it kind of knock us over a little bit. We need to ask ourselves... Is this us? And here's, here's why I think that. You can, you can take this passage here uh, three different ways. You can say he's being hyperbolic, and the author is being hyperbolic, and he's, he's stating something that couldn't possibly apply to a Christian in order to call non-Christians to repent. Fair. Fair statement. You can take it the second way. You can take it and you can say, no, he's, he's being uh, intentionally uh, intentionally aggressive and overstating something that even seems to contradict back what he said back in verse 14, uh, that uh, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, that, that he is now giving us a warning that might uh, clash with that on purpose so that we would be drawn into an act of worship. You could, you could say that as well. You could, you could say what I, what I think the author is doing which is leveling a, a terrifying warning to everyone who hears it. Because i got to believe that this author thinks that this can happen. That somebody who has received the knowledge of truth can turn their backs on it. i gotta, I got to believe that that's what he thinks. And why? Because he says it. Now, next week we'll talk more about the theological implications of what it means, whether or not receiving, and all these things. But this morning, let's let this land on us and recognize that Paul says that Demas abandoned him. That Demas abandoned him for the cares of the world. That he says of the Ephesian elders, there are some who are ravenous wolves among you who just labored in prayer with me before going to my death. 
there. Let's let's be reminded that this is a very real situation that we see often in Christianity. People who profess Christ and show up for a while and test the, test the waters and even seem more zealous than everyone else and then reject the faith. How hard is it for that person to be restored to salvation? Impossible, almost. i got to believe that the author of Hebrews is talking about those guys. Those people who seem so faithful at one time who have rejected Christ for the cares of the world. Just as a side note, don't mix this up. There are people who struggle and struggle deeply with sin. There are people who struggle to walk straight in life. And yet God is faithful and the Spirit is active and moving their lives towards righteousness. And though you may not see somebody else's righteousness, we rest in the confidence that if they are believers, they will move towards holiness and more Christ-likeness as time progresses. There are people who struggle, and we exist as a congregation for what purpose? To stir one another up to good works and love, not neglecting the gathering together, because this is part of our empowerment as believers. We strengthen each other. So we struggle with each other. Struggling, bro- We struggle with brothers. We struggle and we plead with them to return. We've got this saying here that we all struggle. Yours just look different than mine in the moment. So let's struggle together. It is... The tragedy is when we don't invite each other into our struggles. That's the tragedy. That's just a side note. If you are struggling with something, you have a power, and and nobody in the community knows it, you have a power you have not tapped into, which is the community. If you are struggling with something, and you have not invited everyone else into your struggle, and told them, I'm dealing with this, I need help, I need wisdom, I need friendship. I need people just to hang out with me like that. If you have not done that, then you are the opposite of verse 24. 25. Neglecting to gather together. You are neglecting to gather together. This is part of your strength. And in gathering together, you'll be holding fast to the confession of faith. And in holding fast to the confession of faith, I guarantee that latter rung will strengthen. And you will pray and be Encouraged in the faith. This is the power of gospel-centered community. Take advantage of it, sovereign grace. Take advantage of it. You have access to it. Everybody who's got a phone number, you have access to. And guess what? We live in America. Everybody's got a phone number. If they don't have a phone number, they got a Facebook. If they don't have a Facebook, they got an Insta whatever. And if they don't have an Insta whatever, they got some other holographic means of communication. So you got ways to communicate. It's on you if you don't. It's very simple. It's on me if I don't communicate my need to other people. If I don't communicate my struggles, it's on me. 
So that's the aside here. This warning, let it land on us yet again. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So if somebody does this, goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, again, we're going to talk more in detail about what that means next week, but let this land on you. If that's true, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful, so what does remain? So if the sacrifice for sins is removed, what does remain? Here's, here's what does remain. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That is terrifyingly beautiful. Read the poetry in that. that is, it's gorgeous. What does remain? A fearful expectation of judgment. You can almost see it, right? You can almost, I can see my kid when they're in trouble. When I read that line, I can see, I can visualize it right now. I can see them right there. All four of them respond differently, but they all have a fearful expectation of judgment when they know they did something wrong. And there's a trembling here. Now I amplify that because it's not a father coming to you. It's a judge. I remember being with one young man when I was in high school who got pulled over and he got so nervous he threw up because he was so afraid of what was going to happen. Hands on the wheel, he started shaking. Light comes on, blinds him. <laughs> and then he sits and waits that three-hour period you know, between when they walk from their car to yours, he rolls down the window, and he was so nervous when he rolled down the window, he threw up on the window. <laughs> Cop was so disgusted, he gave him a warning. <laughs> but this fearful expectation of judgment sent trembles down his arms and down his legs. And why does it send trembles and and, and fear down. Why should it spark such fear? Why should judgment spark such fear? Because it's a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you go on sinning deliberately against the Most High God, you are not a child, you are an adversary. And you will be consumed by fire. The Bible makes no hesitation about the existence of eternal punishment being a lake of fire that burns forever. It's terrifying. It's why we tell everyone about Jesus. Because I deserve the fire. Because I was that guy. I was the one deliberately sinning against God. I was that one. And I've been redeemed by a most high priest who has rescued me and saved me. And as a result, I wait in reverential fear for my father to come and pick me up. But people who go on deliberately sinning against God, they wait with fearful expectation of judgment because there's a fury of fire that will consume them. 
Then he goes on and he says, just this is the logical argument as to why this is. Why do you think this is? It's, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So anyone who breaks the law of Moses, they die. There's no mercy. It's just judgment. The law is judgment. It's black and white. You either break the law or you don't. It's what Jesus says. You, you have to live by the whole law. If you break even part of it, you're guilty of breaking the law. It's that simple. The law has rules, and you break them, you, you suffer the consequences. On the basis of two or three witnesses. So this is arbitrary, too. It's just, hey, did anybody see them do it? Yeah, we saw them. All right, they're, you're dead. Stoned to death. This is, the law operates that way. And then he says, verse 29, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? And who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit. This verse, this, this deliberately sinning against God offends all three of the Trinity. First, you have rejected the Son of God, offending the Father. Jesus tells a parable about this where he says, I sent my son and the, the tenants killed him. What do you think is going to happen to those tenants? They're all going to die. That's the parable. Very uplifting and encouraging parable. Jesus says that he sends his son and they're all going to die. And the Jewish Pharisees are like, well, that's happy. So that's the first one. They offend God by killing his son. The second one here, they offend by, by spurning the son of God. And then and they profaned the blood of the covenant, which was... Which he, by which he was sanctified. So they, they spurn, they spurn God first by killing his son. Second, they reject the blood of the covenant. They, they, they turn their backs on it and say, I don't care that you clean me. I don't care that you save me. I don't care that you wash me clean. I'm going to hold on to this sin and I'm going to keep it. It's mine. I'm going to keep pressing into this sin. And then finally, they offend the Holy Spirit. They outrage the Spirit of grace. This is sin against the whole Trinity. Now, at this point, one will ask, what is the unpardonable sin? I will respond the same way Jesus does, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then you'll say, what does that mean? And I'll say, I don't know. Because I'm perfectly fine saying I don't know, because I know that I didn't do it. Because I've been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ and I've trusted in him for salvation, and I know I'm not guilty of the unpardonable sin. Because I've trusted in Jesus Christ. For that to happen, can't be guilty of it. So, you want to talk more about that? We can talk more about that at lunch. We can talk more about that in the weeks to come. But in this case, let this land on you. That if God punishes people for the law being broken, how much more will he punish people who have heard of the gospel and rejected it outright? How much worse will that be? Verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Those are terrifying statements for two reasons. One, 
God claims that he is going to bring vengeance, and then he goes silent. This is in the Old Testament he does this. He says, I will have vengeance, and then he waits. The most terrifying thing that you can do to an opponent in any, in any conflict is to go quiet. Judgment has landed, but the execution of that judgment has been postponed. And we live in a grace period where we can go, Lord, forgive me, and he will. But don't take God's silence for inactivity. Indeed, punishment is coming. Justice is coming and will land on this world. For us, we can look and we can go, you'll set everything right. It'll be great. We'll be with the Father. The world will be set right. Recreation will happen. And the world that has been groaning and our groans of the Spirit that have been waiting for everything to be set right will happen. And then, for those who don't believe, the response is very different. It is a fearful expectation of judgment. Only Jesus saves. And if we know him, we will be redeemed. But the warning persists. The Lord will judge his people. <coughs> Second reason this is so scary is not only has God said, I will have vengeance and then sat. God has also said, I will judge my people. Let the warning land on us. First Peter puts it this way. He says, if the judgment of God comes, it will come on the house of God first. The judgment comes, it comes on the house of God first. We are first in line for this. Let the warning land on you. Finally, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. We should be afraid. I remember when my oldest was young, she's still young, but when she was younger, and I would uh, correct her in an aggressive, daddy-like manner. You know what that means? Voice gets deep, kind of growl. All of a sudden, there's a bear in the house, right? Everyone's terrified. My wife goes, John, too much, right? And... And I, I am filled with this righteous indignation for daddy has been defied. It's ridiculous. Anyway, I remember doing this and calling her to stop. She turned. Daddy, you scared me. I'm afraid. When you do that, I'm afraid. And I remember looking at her and going, you should be afraid. Maybe a little too much from me. Now in hindsight realizing, no, she shouldn't be. But there's a fearful reality of judgment. And she, we, the house of God, ought to be a little afraid. Not afraid as in, we're worried about eternal damnation. That's not what I mean. We, we ought to be afraid in the fact that our, our dad's coming back. What have we been doing in the dark? That he has seen. 
And he knows. What have we been doing in the dark? So as we start this new year, have you been deliberately, willfully sinning against God? Because that's a bad idea. Let this warning land on you. That's a bad, bad idea. The best case scenario for you is that you are wandering away at the moment and the Holy Spirit will draw you back. But what this text says is that you are not his and will face punishment. Have you you been? If you have, I pray it's the best case scenario. And you hear this message and it's, it's pulling you back right now. And you're going, I'm sorry. You're right. This isn't who I am. I am redeemed child of God and my Father's coming, and I want to, to know Him and honor Him and, and be blessed by Him. But if you, if you hear this message and you're going, I don't know Jesus, repent and believe. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and only Him. For we have a great high priest who stands before us, who has taken our punishment and our blame and rescued us. And he has torn the veil and said, you can come before God the Father and you can know him. So this morning, I would urge you, in light of this warning, again, we'll talk more about the theological implications next week. But this week, let this land on you. Are you deliberately, willfully, continuously sinning against God? And if you are, if you are a believer... Stop it. Stop. Prove that you are a believer. Because a believer is marked not only by a one-time repentance and a one-time faith, but a continuous lifestyle of repentance for sins. We know we struggle. We know you struggle. Struggle together. Also, just a note. This is not for the person that is not here. This is not for the person that's in the seat next to you. This is not for somebody else. This warning was for me and for you. It was for those who hear it. Now, if you want to direct people to the podcast, maybe it'll be for them too. But you hear it. This is for you. It's not for you to consider others. Examine yourself. Don't examine your neighbor. There's one reason to look at your neighbor's things, and that's to see that they have enough. You look at your neighbor so you can serve them, not so you can critique or attack. You look at your neighbor so you can stir them up in good works and love. So, let's, again, in closing, examine your heart. Consider this. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We love you. We love you, Lord. And you have been so gracious to us. Lord, forgive us where we have scorned our brothers and sisters and applied 
these things to them without applying them to ourselves. Lord, for those of us who are struggling with sin, we confess to you that we need your spirit to remove it from us and to strengthen our hearts. We want nothing more than for your name to be glorified. So glorify it in us. Conform us to your image that we would be more like Christ. We trust you and we love you. Amen.